0: Today our text will be Nehemiah, chapter 2, 17 through 20. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king has spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But then Sambalot and Hornite and Tobiah the Amorite servant of Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Dear Gracious Father, Lord God, just thank you for this, this encouraging text, Lord God, that your, your hand is upon your people, Lord for good, and Lord, I just pray that um, we will just um, that our understanding of Your sovereignty today will just um, just just take root deeper into our hearts. Lord, I pray that we will be encouraged to continue to go out into the world, Lord, and to make disciples for Your glory, to build uh, Your kingdom. And it's in Your name we pray, Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, hello, my name is Alvin. I'm one of the elders here at Macav Community Church. And uh, first, I would like to say welcome to all our guests. Um, you know, I remember the church I used to go to, and it was a few other churches where when you had guests, that you basically kind of got put on front street where they would have you stand and then sing to you, yeah, sing a song. And it was funny because my last church, they had three verses, So if you are a guest, I mean, you didn't know where to put your eyes at, because it's always weird when somebody is like really making that eye contact. Um, But we don't do that here. But we still welcome you and glad you have joined us today. Um, We live in a very conscious time. We live in a time where society is really aware of all the... um, Systemic issues of race that we have in this country Um, Issues that have been plaguing this nation um, From its very beginning, even until now And in this uh, new era of of wokeness um, Or consciousness, as some may call it It has produced a plethora of movies, documentaries um, Music, arts, podcasts, and blogs Um, But to be honest with you, at times it feels like it's just um, kind of a fad. And when I say that, I'm not talking about those who are really laboring to see change happen. Um, You know, I've been blessed from the movies and the documentary. You know, I'm working on my master's from PBS history, right? So and Netflix, and so you have all these these great resources come out, and I praise the Lord in this season. Even just really been excited to see a lot of Black scholars begin to be um, not raised up because they always been here, but now that they're um, being put in front and beginning to to minister and really teach and and equip the body of Christ. But with all that said and done, is it me or do? And sometimes it feel like it's just kind of a fad, like. It's a thing to do. It's the it's the end thing, you know. I remember growing up in the nineties, actually the eighties, you know, and the nineties. Praise the Lord, I'm still going, right? But I remember there was like this same type of era happened then. Um, it was uh, the conscious movement. Uh, we were talking about industrialized racism, and and you had fight the power. You had public enemy, poor righteous teachers. You had just. This whole, actually, with hip-hop, you had this this culture just kind of rise up and begin to speak into the miseries and everything that was going on in our culture. And what was fascinating about it is that it blew up and went around the world because people, whether you were in India, whether you were in Africa, whether you were in um, Thailand or wherever it was, it was like, it was like the music that really expressed what they were feeling. And so it was this really cool era, um, very similar to this era. But then it it died out. And I could go into why all the reasons it died out. But one thing I, I think, and just, just me kind of theorizing, is that the consciousness was root. And really self-preservation, that it was a consciousness um, that was rooted um, and and just, yeah, it was self-preservation. It was, again, that end thing, that fad, but it was nothing there of any long-lasting substance. And when a generation begins to grow up and then because of the, the work of the generation before them, and now there's opportunity to have some resources, and the red line began to drop in. Now we could buy some homes. we kind of get lulled into this 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 coma of thinking like we arrived and I believe we kind of lived in that space for a long time until social media and and camera phones where we got awakened to the fact that. No matter how far we move from the hood, we're still black. No matter how, how many people who are able to have access to resources and to be able to obtain a quality of life, that there's still um, a major still a hood where people are suffering and where they are facing just all the weight of their issues, of their systemic oppression. And so what is it that we need so that we don't repeat the past? What is it that we need to keep us going so that 10, 20 years from now, we won't just look at the good old days of, of Mac and the, the good old days where just fighting the man and just reminisce on all the jams that came out. What is going to keep us um, continuously staying in the fight? I think it's really simple. It's a consciousness that's rooted in Christ, a consciousness that is not just awakened to, to just seeing somebody harmed, right? Seeing someone killed and murdered, but it's a consciousness that understands the death of the image of God that understands like, this is a God bearer, a image bearer that is being murdered. Um, that this goes beyond just uh, a fad right some documentaries, but this is real life, and God is deeply grieved by it. the fact that the fall still reign, and it's always we're always constantly being reminded of it, but the beautiful thing is is that christ his consciousness didn't just allow him to stay in heaven, it didn't just allow him to To just continue to stay there and be in the glories of heaven where he was worshiped and adored. But that he, and this is called the humiliation of Christ, where he humbled himself, where he left the glories of heaven, heaven to enter into our miseries. He was born into a poor family. He had to subjugate himself under the law. He had to be abused by people who he gave life to. And he had to, you know, we get bothered and we get vexed. But what if you're the omniscient, all powerful, all knowing God and to see the pain and the miseries of his people, but not just his people, Israel, but just all of humanity we have to begin to, to see this world as Christ saw it. And when Christ saw people hurting, he was compelled to be compassionate, that his love came with pity. That's what compassion is. And as he labored in this world, going through everything that we have gone through, he did it with perfection. Perfection. He endured all the pain. But he did it without sin. And then as he was falsely accused. And murdered on a cross. He says to his father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Because they had a dead consciousness. They were dead in in their sins. They were dead in their trespasses. And this is what we see still in the world. A world of people that can recognize on a surface level good versus evil. They may be able to do some good things, but at the end of the day, they are not woke or they don't have the conscience That would allow them to to model and to live as Christ has lived. A consciousness that is rooted in his humility. A consciousness that models his life in every way. Now, of course, we can't incarnate, right? Um, God taking flesh and dwelling with us. But when we are submitted to the spirit and when we are um, saying, Lord, I'm going to minister in this area that I'm dwelling in, that I'm going to enter into people's sufferings. I'm going to enter into people's miseries so that they could see you, that they could be reconciled to you and reconciled with one another. And so today we're going we're going to be talking about a brother, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was someone who. As we learned over the last couple of weeks, he, he had a pretty cool job. He, he was the equivalent of a chief of staff. He had a high position in the king's cabinet. But what was cool for him, what was cool about him, is that he flipped his access to the king to acquire resources um, in order to bring to his people. Right? When he heard about his people struggling and that they were in despair, he didn't just send them with a, a man, pray for Jerusalem. He didn't just send his brothers and off and say, man, you know, here are a couple of dollars. Tell the family I love them. No, he was vexed to his very core and it led, and it led him to, to pray and to fast. It, laid them, it led them to a place of confession. It led them to a place of repentance, not just for his sin, but the sin of the nation. You know, that's one of the things that we have not done as a nation, that we haven't repented um, for the atrocities that we have done under the name of Christ. And, you know, I was listening to a podcast, but um, and the the... The guy was making an argument why evangelicals don't have to, don't have to um, seek forgiveness. Right. That the whole thing about generational curses or generational sin, uh, that was done in the old covenant. We're living in grace now. But the reality of it is, is that when I minister in the hood, I'm always reminded of the sins of our forefathers. Whenever someone says, you know, that Christianity is the white man's religion, whenever I'm taught about Columbus and not talking about him on the same level that we talk about Hitler, but the thing with Columbus is everything he did, he did in the name of his Jesus And the thing is, is that this thing keeps, it keeps going from generation to generation to generation to generation. generation, And each generation is taught how to put themselves above their brothers. You know, even the ideal of the black church was birthed out of that hate, that sin, not being able to to pray. In the house of the Lord. But Nehemiah didn't take that approach. He realized that the people. Had sinned. He realized that. But he realized that there was a, a covenant. Loving God. You see the thing is his consciousness. Right. He, he it was rooted in being a God fearing Jew. He understood the promises of God. He understood that God chose Israel. And he understood that if they will repent, confess their sins and repent, that the Lord will prosper his land, their land. And so with that hope, he engages the king because of his character, because of his giftedness as a administrator. Right. The Lord worked in the king to just give him a black card, right? Just gave him access to all the resources that he needed, gave him security, gave him everything. And so now Nehemiah, after looking at the landscape, right? Because when he first entered into Jerusalem, he didn't go straight to the people and he didn't get to preaching. What he did was he kind of observed things, you know, because sometimes when we live that palace life, You know, we could kind of forget what goes on in the hood, you know, and and sometimes we could read books about poverty and we could read um, books or watch them podcasts and documentaries, but there's nothing like once you got boots to ground and you looking at it and you seeing the hurt and the destination, you're seeing people abuse your people. And so Nehemiah being the, very thoughtful, prayerful uh, brother that he was, right? He, He prayed, he planned, he took his time. And then when the time was right, he gathered the elders, he gathered the leaders, and then he began to cast vision. And that's where we find ourselves today in this text. Now, the first thing, if we could bring that first text up, He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And so here he comes to the people again. I, I love the fact that these emotions that he expressed to the people, these were the same emotions that he had in the palace. Right. Again, that's that example of, of, a, of a consciousness or a wokeness, right, that led him from the palace back to his community. The question I have for you is, like, is what is your palace, right? Is there, what is causing you from really going there, really just saying, you know what? I'm about to minister at all costs in this community, You know, sometimes we can look at it and just kind of make it a suburb thing versus a city thing, right? As if the suburbs aren't, it's not a dark place, right, spiritually. But even us living, and I'm living in this community and I'm guilty of this, even though we're entrenched here and even though we have bought homes, right? Have you just found yourself that there's still something that is like not allowing you to to really enter into the misery, to really minister and to be on your block and be out in the streets, to be um, um, involved in activist work, right? To, to 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 volunteer, to just really be out there in the community. You see, because a lot of times, again, we we always have that struggle. There's always something that's going to um, prevent us from just going out there. You know, into the world. And so one of the things I want to encourage you is to ask yourself. Why are you comfortable and what is or what is that thing that's giving you comfort that are that is not allowing you to engage as you have been called to engage? Amen. But then I also like the fact the way that he. He spoke into their misery. I mean, because every point. I mean, it just struck them to the core. Right. Have you ever talked with someone and you're going through some things and then they just know how to talk to you in a way where it just boom, it just hits you. and You just like, man, you feel me. Have you ever had that experience? You see, Nehemiah understood the culture. And he understood the culture, not just for their plight, like their present condition. He understood the people. Again, one of the things that we can gain from this is that a people is more than just their current plight. Amen. That the people in this community, they're, they're more than just poor and black and oppressed. And we have to remember that because oftentimes when we just see a people simply as that, what we can begin to do is become very paternalistic and very benevolent um, in our care for them. You see, God did supply Nehemiah resources to take. But Nehemiah said, let us build, right? That's key. Let us let us build. But then he also understood the people. And their culture. He understood the big picture. He understood the fact that Israel's purpose was to model to the nations, that they would be a model nation that would present God to the rest of the nation. In Exodus 19, 4 through 6, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings. And brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasure. You shall be my treasure possession among all people for all the earth is mine. And you shall be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then in Exodus, Exodus 23, 22, But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. You see, Israel was to be this place of rest, prosperity, security and peace. Israel thus had the privilege of portraying to all nations what the redeemed and restored cosmos would be like. People were to see Israel and go, man, like this place is dope. They will come and see the way that brothers and sisters was loving one another. They will see the equal distribution of wealth and and resources and the fact that everybody had access to it. That Israel would have been so countercultural that people would have been like, yo, we want your God to be our God. Amen. But they're not experiencing any of this. Instead of feeling the security and God's protection, their gates were down and they were open for attacks. Instead of experiencing prosperity in the land, Jerusalem lies in ruins. Instead of being God's witness to the nation, they were mocked. You see, every single thing he said, it was just just ministering and hitting To the soul. And that's one of the things that we have to learn is speaking the language of hope and speaking the language of being able to identify with people in a way that they would respond. You know, when I think about this passage, and he says, no longer suffer derision, you know, uh, which is shame and, and being mocked. You know, I think about it from our culture, right? Being robbed of your history, being robbed of your identity, um, being told that you're lesser than, right? Being told, like, the situation that you're in is your fault, right? Because of the fatherlessness in your community, right? Because of the drugs. And there's a reason why more blacks are killed by police is because y'all do more stuff, right? Now, we know those those issues, those things aren't valid. And there's a way to, to kind of deflect what's going on. But it's, it gets frustrating when you're always, one, being projected that you're... The reason why my community looks the way that it looks is because of shame. And it's shame just doesn't go into the what the world has is teaching us or, or presenting to us now as dealing with police brutality and all this other stuff. But then just having the the shame of being told that you're lesser than your culture is lesser than it affects the way that we look at one another with self hate, right? Thinking white is right, and there's a lot of black folks where they think if it's white, if if it's in popular culture, they like that's it, that's good. You know, oftentimes when we talk about supporting black businesses, you know, people go, I don't. They could get jacked up customer service at one establishment, and they'll continue to go. They'll continue to go. But let them go to a black-owned establishment and get some jacked-up service. You see, that's our problem. That's our problem. Right? Even the way that we look for mates, right? Colorism and all this other stuff, it just affects so much of how we look at ourselves. And that's what Racism does. It just changes the way that you perceive yourself and it changes the way that you perceive others that's in your group. So he was speaking of the shame. And one of the ways we can minister to the shame is to remind the people in our community that, look, your history doesn't start in 1619. That's what my sister Edith said. Right. Right. I asked her the question, I said, Edith, would you define blackness? The first thing she did was took me to the very beginning, right? And to remind me that our history didn't start at 1619. Israel history didn't start at the exile, right? It started when God chose them to be his special people. And when we look at the African-American community, the African community, we added value to society. And there's a reason why and there's one of the things i really love about the time we're in that there's this renewed look at ourselves is is this ideal of going like we did this like we added to christianity we helped shape the mind of christianity that these doctrines the trinity and all these other beautiful doctrines that we hold so tight there was brothers from africa When we talk about the university system, when we talk about libraries, there's this beautiful, rich culture. And our community needs to be reminded of this, because if we just continue to talk about how jacked up it is, all you begin to do is just pile up, even if you have good intentions. And so we got to. Remind ourselves of the history, and so for my black brothers and sisters, what we need to do is begin to look at our history through redemptive lenses. We we look through our history not just simply to find ourselves, right? Just so we can kind of put ourselves on a pedestal, right? That's that plantation right theology. What we do is that we look at our culture, we look at our history, we look at everything about us. And then we begin to say, what does it look like to see my blackness through the gospel? What does it look like to be unapologetically black and unapologetically Christians? And for my beautiful white brothers and sisters, what you need to do is really take the time to begin to to dive into the history To learn a culture, again, not just from these conditions, not just from the sociological, you know, issues, but like, man, how can I communicate value and worth? You know, that's one of the things we always talk about is we're here to tell people dignity, value, and worth, that they have value because they are created in the image of God. And oftentimes we look at the reformers and the reformation, which I like the reformation, right? But then we kind of not talk about our history, black history. Right. Black history is the world history. And so we want to be able to to speak and to 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 speak against the shame and allow people to embrace what other people brought to the table. And then he spoke to the shame. He said, no longer shame but then it was also they was dealing with the fears and anxieties of just being oppressed and being unsafe you know raising black children is i find myself like sometimes having to like teach my kids and then just have a moment of just like lord i'm scared Because on one end, I'm teaching them what it is to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul and strength. Right. Ultimately, that's I want them to worship the Lord. And I know that the way that the Lord has called us to love is going to be a way that might cause them persecution. Persecution. And then I have to turn around and tell them about the persecution for being simply black. And as I look at my sons and I see their shoulders are getting broader and I see them getting bigger and I'm kind of like, yeah, do my genetics right there. And And I see their beautiful melanin dark skin. I'm like, see, yep, it's popping. But then you look on social media and you go. And you see that a young boy is shot because he look older than he was supposed to. I'm, 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 I'm looking at the pictures of the young men. And again, I'm looking at all these, these different scenarios. And, and it's crazy because they come from this two-parent home. Their father is an elder. I work for the government and all this other stuff that's supposed to keep us safe. But at the end of the day, that won't. And so there's an anxiety and a fear and a a collective trauma that has come, that has been with us over hundreds, like centuries of just, and, and I got these words from Sarita Lyons. She says, an entire race of people for centuries has individually and vicariously been experiencing repetitive trauma that result in what is called race-based traumatic stress at best and at worst has developed post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is due from overwhelming, unrelenting, unacknowledged, unrepentant racism. And so, you know, you look at this passage of scripture and there's a reason why Nehemiah is so popular in a black community. Because we read Nehemiah and we go, wow, that, that, that speaks to us. Right. And so Nehemiah, knowing his people, knowing the heart of God, seeing that God has answered all his prayers, you know. Lord, he, he prayed, Lord, I want to get to my people, Lord. Like, what is it that you want me to do? And the Lord's put on his heart to build a wall. Build a wall. What is it that, that, that what the Lord is putting on your mind, in your heart? Have you prayed like, Lord, what is it that you want me to do in this community? I, I love this because we're talking about personal ministries. Right in our a, a church, like what can you do on a personal level? We talk about corporate ministries and our outreaches and all those different things are dope. But what is it that you want to do on a personal level? And we see like, man, God works through <laughs> he works through his people. And, and what started off as just being broken. And, and, and desiring to see God's glorified desiring to see his name, not blaspheme, desiring to care for his people, turned into a major restoration project. Now, don't want us to get twisted and just say like, oh, it's the resources. Because a lot of times when people, sometimes when we preach this scripture, it could be just about community building. And that's cool that it's community building. But what we see later on in this text, well, not what I'm covering today, but what we see later on that what Nehemiah was doing was setting the groundwork for a great revival that will come. And so now I talked about like, ooh, all the bad stuff, right? The rough stuff. Let's talk about what it looked like to have hope and what it looked like to go to a people with hope. Amen. And then verse 18, he says, and I told them of the hand of my God. That had been upon me for good, and also the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good. The cool thing again about Nehemiah, he identified with their miseries, he identified with their shame, but he wasn't identifying with their defeat. He had a testimony. Of what God has done in his life. And that testimony wasn't just a personal testimony about what God has done. His God good hand on his life. But it was also what God is still doing for his people. Nehemiah came with a message of hope to tell Israel to say, yo. God is still for us. Again, he spoke that covenantal language. That's why language is important when we communicate hope. He communicated their misery and shame in a way where they understood and it and it touched them and it and, and they identified with them. And then he spoke the hope that he had in a way that would give them life. Have you ever heard someone said like, "Man, that just gave me life"? Right? You know what gave me life? That mural on outside of um, the comments. Oh my stars! That's like. I know, oh, my stars. My wife always say, oh, my stars, and now I'm saying it. <laughs> but oh, my stars. That was the most life-giving thing that's on Mac, right? Because it when I looked at it, and again, this is what happens when you understand culture, is like, man, to see this beautiful black woman with Afrocentric features and to see this Black man. Some people thought it was me. <laughs> I know this beautiful, strong black man <laughs> with hair, <laughs> right? But it, it's one. It spoke to me everything that I felt like was taken away from us. But then I was able to see this beautiful, vibrant picture of what it could be. And so to see this strong black woman, this strong man, and to see her looking off to the side as if she's looking, you know, as the man is kind of forward and he's looking straight ahead and he's leading the family. And then you have the wife being the, uh, the comforter, the, being the helpmate, the protector. She's looking off for any side attacks, right? She's, she's looking, she's supporting him. He can look straight ahead because she got him covered on the other side. And to see like, man, strong black family, because at the end of the day, that's what we've desired because that was taken away from us. And then to see the beauty, the, the 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 colors, the cross, and then to go make disciples. That's like, oh, you know, sometimes I go out my way to work just to see that. And again, that's one of those things that it. It speaks into the community pain, and, but they remind them, it also reminds us like it doesn't have to stay this way. Amen? Amen. So it, it speaks to you in the same way when Nehemiah says, "The hand of God," they understood that to mean um, that it talks about God's sovereignty. Uh, A definition of that is a figure of speech which points to God's sovereign power in creation in his actions on behalf of his people, especially in redemption. So in Nehemiah 110, it says they are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. In Exodus 3:19 to 20, it says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he'll let you go. That's one of the most <laughs> beastly passages of scripture. Like he ain't going to let you go. But when I lay these hands on Pharaoh, he'll let you go. And so throughout scripture and even throughout Ezra and throughout Nehemiah, you constantly hear this thing. Hear God saying or Ezra, Nehemiah saying by God's hand. And so when they're sitting there and they're hearing um, Nehemiah talk, right? And he's casting out the vision. When he first say, let us build, they're not going to be trying to build because to build, even if they had the resources. Right. The king will be like, what? You know, y'all raising up on me is rebellion. Right. It's kind of like black, you know, um, black Wall Street. Right. When African-Americans did have resources and they build, they begin to build their cities. What happened? They came, laid ruin. So sometimes you don't even, it's not just an issue of resources. It's an issue of um, needing God's hand to be upon you. And so when he talked about how God basically worked the king's heart, that his good hand was on me, and he told him about all the king said, right? The king was like, here go my card. You got security. You got this. You good. All right. When are you going to go back? When are you going to come back? A year? Okay, cool. See you later. Enjoy the fam. Tell them, to say what up. Right? And they're going like, man, the king, right? Who who could just take us out like this? Like God is using him to now provide resources? And what happened? Scripture says they strengthened up their hands. Right? Here they go. They were defeated. They were miserable. No one was actually living in Jerusalem. They were living on the outskirts. This was their daily miserable life. But as soon as God's servant came to them, right, and they heard that God still loved them and they could see God's love through the resources, through the working on the king's heart. It was like we could do this. And they strengthened their hands. And what we see in the next chapters. They get, they get to work. They get to work. You know one of the things. As I'm looking at this passage of scripture. I'm just reminded of. My history. Here in this country. You know, one of the things I've been doing is I have really got fascinated with black history. And one of the reasons is not just that I could get stuff to go ahead and like clap back at people with, you know, um, even though that's fun, too. Um, But I want to see God's hand in my in my history. I want to see God's hand what was he doing on behalf of my people? Now, oftentimes when we look at history, sometimes we can look at it from like the the things that the black churches did, the sociological point, and that's cool, that's great. Read it, study it; it's awesome. Or then we could look at Christianity from the perspective of um, the privilege abusing their power in the name of Jesus. But what I want to see, and I encourage y'all to look for it, but what was God doing at that time? Right? What was he doing? And when I look at our history, and this is something, this is an apologetic, right? I was just listening to um, this sister talk about how black church history is an apologetic. And one of the things about uh, our history Is that you can't separate black history from the black community. You can't separate those two things. Partly because. God through his church. God raised up a church on a plantation. God raised up a church in the north. When you think about our. Ancestors. For me and some of you, our physical ancestors, but for all of us, our spiritual ancestors, that even when at first the slave master was like, No, nah, we're not telling them about Christianity, well, we know that's a liberating uh, religion, so they ain't want to tell them about it. But they begin to hear about the Exodus, and they begin to go, Wait, there's a God that cares about our suffering? that freed the people from slavery. And it be, and they began to call out on that God's name. And when you read their testimony, it's not no superficial testimony. They understood God as a liberator of not just their physical condition, but they also knew God as a liberator who would free them from the bondage of sin. It's amazing how they, without any theological education, had such a, a beautiful testimony of who God was. That's the power of God. That's his hand on the on his church. And then in the north where they didn't, they weren't going through slavery, but they were dealing with major oppression and marginalization. They look at these passages of scripture, the exile period, and they go, wow, that That the gospel spoke to identity, that the gospel spoke to their physical um, realities, their marginalization. And what did they do? They strengthened their hands and they began to say, you know what? We got to fight for abolitions. We got to send brothers back over to Africa to tell our people over there. It, It birthed this missional movement. And I think it's important because we could kind of think like, oh, this is a new thing. But no, this is an old thing that God has been doing from the very beginning. And why do I bring this up? Because we need to be encouraged by these things so that when we go out in the community and they say, man, that's that white man religion. It's like, nah, bruh, you need to get woke. You need to learn history. You need to know what God did for you and for our community. And what he's still doing for his people. Oh, how I praise the Lord that He is waking up, and He's given us a a fervency to be on mission. I love the ideal that we have, uh, the missional movement, and like all these other things, and that He brought you guys all here. But let us not walk with arrogance. But let us be reminded that we can do this because God's been here, and He's been doing. Mighty things through his church. And so you get to verse 19. But when Sambalot and Horonite and Tobiah, the Amorite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So here come opposition, right? There's always that opposition. You don't think people don't see what we're doing and that there's not going to be opposition? And with opposition, it's, 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 when you look at these men, they all had like reasons, financial reasons to oppress and to not want to see the, the wall rebuild Right. And we saw that in previous chapter. Right. Then. I'm a friend. All right. So. That's opposition. Right. (laughs) But they all had like reasons to not want to see the wall build. But it was also, we know that this is spiritual warfare, that they were being used by the enemy. And here's the deal. They knew Nehemiah had his paperwork tight. They knew that, you know, they couldn't touch him at the time because he had security around him. So, you know, they couldn't just be like, yo, we're going to get him later. Right. They couldn't do any of that. So what does opposition do? It try to Fear scare them, intimidate them, ridicule them. And in America, as I was like, man, what are some cultural examples of opposition? And, and one of the things, yeah, we hear brothers talk about, yeah, Christianity, the white man's religion, like all that other stuff. Um, I think there's the opposition from the reconciliation movement where they're saying that's the social gospel, that's You know, that's heresy and all this other stuff. But then there's also a subtle opposition. And what I'm going to call that is allied opposition. You see, there's opposition that's a clear and present danger. And we see that. But then there's the opposition where it comes as allies. And when I say that, there's going to be people that's, Are like yo We feel you We're going to come alongside you You know um, We're in this same struggle You know They're fighting for liberation And like all this other stuff But I'm telling you It's going to come to a point When they're not going to be our allied It's going to come to a point Where they're going to intimidate us And they're going to try to ridicule us You really believe one man One woman you really believe that a woman shouldn't have a right to do what she wants with her body? You really believe that there's only one way to God? All of these things, right? You really think the Bible is the word of God? Oh you one of those people. We thought you were woke, but you're dead to that to them dead scriptures and to that body. And so what do we do in those situations, right? And I'm not saying you go out there and begin to just hellfire brimstone to everybody, right? Because the reality of it is, is that the unbelieving world is going to do what the unbelieving world is going to do. It's going to be their natural inclination to want to oppose God. And what I love about Nehemiah here is he gives a clapback, right? And I love it when he says, then I reply to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants will rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Oh, I love that. You know, I love that. Because, you know, when you even look at history, it's funny. I'll hear cats be like, you know, whites and black fought for to end slavery and to bring about civil rights. And I'm like, yup. It was blacks and a teeny, teeny, teeny amount of white people, right? But what happens is, is they embrace that legacy and they go, that's our legacy. You see what I do? Did we see what we done back then? And it's like, no, that's not the history, right? You were the opposition and you're still being the opposition. And so we have to be bold whether the opposition is coming in-house whether the opposition is coming from people outside, we got to be bold enough and go ahead and clap back at people. And I love it. He didn't rely on his credentials. He ain't say, well, well, you know, the king, you know, I'm down with the king. You know, we get down like that. No, he didn't. No, he says the God of heaven will make us prosperous and we his servants will rise and build. Right. He put it back on God. This is you, I'm not worried about you. I don't care about your fear. You oppressed these people for far too long. When I first met you, you was trying to clown them. You weren't taking care of them. I'm not scared of you. I served the God of heaven. He was bold about it. He was bold about his faith. He was bold because his his conscience was aware that there is a God who loved him, who loved his people, who personally touched him, gave him a testimony, said, I will prosper you. You think I'm going to be scared of some clowns like you? The clap back every now and then it's cool. We could clap back at people. Right. And then Jesus clapped back. We got four gospels of Jesus is clapping back at people. Right. And so be bold, family. Now, what is the take home? We may have hope in the present because the work of God on behalf of Israel in the past stands as a model for God's participating in the future of the community. We can step out into the community, right? One, because we all have a personal testimony of what God has done in our lives. I love Nehemiah. He had a testimony. You can't go in the community, defeated. Because what the community needs to see is like, man, God worked in your life. They need to see people who are suffering the same way that they're suffering, but somehow able to flourish. They need to see the person that that may be struggling with addiction, but they're struggling with a hope in Christ. That they will be able to. Still be able to find joy as they fight to get relieved from it. To be able to say God's grace is sufficient. They need to see women prospering in their singleness. Flourishing in their singleness. Not chasing after men. But just enjoying the Lord. They need to see brothers that are willing to be countercultural and not in this toxic masculinity, but are standing bold for their families, standing bold for their children. They need to see a community that is totally countercultural. That even when they look and they could they could see on the television and see all the division, all the hate, all the vitriol. They can look and see a church where people are loving one another and loving each other and loving them and speaking to their miseries, right? They need to see people who are being able to overcome because of Christ and what he has done. I'm telling you, it's going to be a beautiful thing. And I'm going to end it here. When people from our community begin to come to Christ because when they become to Christ, see, they didn't know our journey, right? They don't, they don't know my journey or how I came there. They didn't see me. I could tell them my testimony, but they didn't see me. But when they begin to see people in their community, who was whatever type of sin that they were, and then see that person come to Christ And 180, man, that's going to be a beautiful thing when those we reach begin to be those who do outreach. And if God can raise up a church on a plantation and raise that church to a place of prominence where they will teach the nation what it is to love thy neighbor I believe that he could do something in our community, whether it's Indian village, West Village, Pangry, Harding, North Village. Do you believe that? Is that your hope? Is that your confidence? Or you woke? (laughs) Amen. Let us pray. Dear Gracious Father, Lord God, I just thank you, Lord, for not sending us out here by ourselves. Lord, we thank you that you still have your hand on your people. Lord, that you are ministering to those who have experienced trauma. That you are ministering to those who have struggled with depression and fear and anxieties. Lord, that you are still providing resources, that you are still raising up servants. And you are still fulfilling your redemptive history until our Savior comes back and make all things new. Lord, I pray that as we leave out here today, Lord, that we will have a testimony, Lord, and a boldness to share that testimony with that community, with our communities but not just our community to share our testimony with our co-workers, to share our testimony with our family and to all that we're here of how gracious and caring and loving you are. And love, I pray, Lord, I pray that whatever goodness that you um, allow us to do in this community, Lord, I pray that they won't see MacAv. I pray that they won't see Mac development. I, I pray that they will see you and that your goodness will bring them to repentance. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.